0: The Valley Hub Stories podcast acknowledges traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been recorded, Goombangir country. We acknowledge their continuing connection to and care of country throughout time. Welcome to another episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. I'm your host, Penny Coulter. Today on The Pot, I'm talking with the wonderful Laura Menning from our Doula Services. Laura is a passionate advocate in our area, working as a birth, postnatal and death doula across the Nambucca Valley. Now, you might be thinking these are quite polarising events in one's life and you would be right. But as you'll soon hear, these events, the symbolism, care, Ceremony all have more in common than we might realise. This is a conversation about life and death, and there are some topics covered within that some people may find confronting. While we encourage you to reach out to supports if needed, I invite you to listen in. I feel the light and shade here are woven together in a positive and empowering way that Laura delivers. A conversation that will leave you curious, but also empowered. Now, let's get started. Laura, Benning, thanks for joining me. Hi, Penny. (laughs) So, Laura, tell me a little bit about you.
1: I guess I would describe myself as a mother of two beautiful daughters. I'm really grateful uh, to be living on Gumbangia country, and I work as a birth and death doula. So yeah. Did you grow up here? Actually I grew up in uh, Western Sydney but my grandparents were originally from here and then they uh, retired here so I did grow up visiting the area on school holidays and it really did feel like a coming home when my partner and I moved here. uh, We got in just (laughs) pre-COVID.
0: So what prompted the move home?
1: My mum actually retired and uh, she moved up this way uh, and actually moved into the house that my grandparents lived in. So, yeah, it was a very, very strong pull for me when my partner and I got married that uh, we wanted to relocate somewhere uh, close to family and I'd always loved the area.
0: Yeah. So you are a birth and death doula in our community What is the scope of your practice? Where do you travel to? Is it just in the Nimbucca Valley or beyond?
1: Yeah, so I'm happy to travel, but generally I service families from Kempsey up to Cos Harbour.
0: Yeah. I think most people will know what a birth doula is, but perhaps some may not quite know the role of a death doula. So could you explain that a little more?
1: Yeah, Sure. I was introduced to the concept of a death doula or death walker. Sometimes people even refer to it, the role as a death midwife, as someone who walks alongside the dying person or the dying person's family and offers them emotional support. So it's not actually a medical role. Uh, it's a role to offer advocacy and emotional and practical support surrounding uh,
0: the dying person and their family. Mm. So essentially the reverse of a birth doula.
1: Yeah, so the, it does have a lot of crossover. So um, I do find myself being on call, preparing meals, looking after younger si- siblings or children and uh, sometimes pets even. So, <laughs> yeah, it is really important work and a sacred space to be in, and it's real honour to be able to serve families in this way. I actually have a background in palliative care and disability, mental health and aged
0: care support as well. So what kind of families will engage support from a death doula? What are, what are the situations that you will kind of find yourself in?
1: So I've been approached by all different families, people from different walks of life. So at first it was coming through palliative care referrals and people uh, dying in hospital in palliative care. And after supporting people in that space, I did a death doula training with Denise Love of Life Options. So it's an Australia-based online training. And since then it's been more families reaching out that are choosing to die at home. So in Australia you can be supported to die at home, surrounded by your loved ones and supported by palliative care from the hospital. So um, sometimes it will be the family that reaches out and sometimes it will be the person with a terminal illness or someone who knows that they're going to die and they want that support.
0: What is that experience like of being with someone and, and being with their family in that space? because you know I guess you know not not speaking from a medical perspective but perhaps a, um, a spiritual and a philosophical perspective because it is you know that that kind of a situation. you know people people die differently. And with different experiences and different hopes and different, you know, it's, it's full of meaning in its own sense, isn't it, really? What are some of the ways, the different ways that that can look?
1: I guess it's dependent on how much the person approaching death has had time to reflect and if they know their death is coming, know the options they have. So in... My experience which hasn't been, I'm not an expert by any means, but I have walked a lot alongside a few people and seeing most people who know they're going to die have a lot of time to prepare for that. And I find there's this overriding culture and fear of death, so it's really hard sometimes for people to know what to say to the person dying and it's really hard for family members to hold that space especially if they haven't had any prior experience. It's a term that gets thrown around a lot (laughs) in the birth and death uh, worker realms but basically it's just being able to sit with someone without offering your own judgments or opinions and letting them feel whatever feelings come up for them and Uh, giving them time and safety to express whatever it is they're feeling.
0: Mm -hmm. What about the physiological process? So, again, that's a different experience for everybody, isn't it? Some people, you know, will be quite peacefully asleep and others it won't look that way. How do you manage that, you know, the confronting aspects of that and supporting families through that process? Yeah, definitely.
1: So at home, usually... There's not as much uh, medical intervention. Well, you will have pain relief and palliative care teams coming, depending on where you are. And if you're regional, sometimes it's all on you. So it can be quite confronting and there are sort of signs. So people generally stop eating and declined drink and food towards the end. And it can be confronting, especially when it's your person, when it's your loved one and I've sat vigil with several family members and it does hit differently. So I find myself when I'm in that space with walking alongside a family with their loved one with a great amount of empathy because the portal of death is very similar to birth. You never know how you're going to react until you walk through it. And as a death support worker, I can hold your hand and I can walk alongside you and be there for you but you're the one who has to walk through it Mm -hmm. and I'm sort of there on the other side (laughs) to welcome you home. Like it's it's very similar to birth in in that you can't do it for the person, but you can provide support and acknowledgement and witness their own unique journey, however it unfolds.
0: Mm. What are some of the unique kind of, I guess, customs and, and caring rituals for when you're sitting vigil with somebody who's, pu- who's dying, but also post-death, you know, what can that look like?
1: Yep. So often if someone has a terminal illness, they can still, and and we all know they're going to die, there can still be an immediate emergency panic after the last breath, after that person does die. And I had a beautiful mentor of mine say, don't call anyone, Take a moment, pause, make a cup of tea because you don't get those moments back. And, you, and as soon as other people are rushing in and doing things and moving things, and they might be disconnecting medical equipment, you sort of lose that energetic space where sometimes you just want to sit back and be with what is. Mm. And um, that's something that I do talk through with families. Uh, some families choose to play a song or light a candle or, you know, ritual is, it's such an individual ceremony. So anything can be a ritual as long as it has intention and meaning to you.
0: It's kind of like the golden hour after birth, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and
1: also... Compare it to the sacred postpartum space. Like, who do you want in your death space? You, mm. Who's your death team? Who do you want energetically coming into that space? Who Who do you trust? Who's going to support your wishes and your decisions?
0: I want to ask you, you know, what you've learned from being in that process, but I also want to want to ask how you manage kind of driving away from that space too, because that's a huge, heavy thing to process and carry. And then I guess there's, you know, the follow-ups of seeing the family around and, and being reminded of that. Yeah. So walk me through how you kind of check out and, and process. Uh, definitely in
1: small communities <laughs> that does happen. But also for me it's very cathartic to sing in the car, <laughs> to cry in the car. You're often driving when, a lot when you're on call. And that relates to birth and death as well. I engage mentors in the death space where you can debrief and it's also really important to me and my integrity not to be whatever's said in in that person's home or that experience is theirs to share. Mm. So I'm very unconscious of people's privacy and I really appreciate clients in, in birth and death that allow me to share images or glimpses of their story because once you go through something and you, and you can feel how profound and huge that change is for you and you have a positive experience, often there's a great desire to share that with others so they can uh, know their options. And so it may not be right for everyone, but as, as long as you know your options, then then you actually have a choice.
0: Mm. So what has being a part of this process for so many people taught you? I think for me it comes back to my own personal experiences with
1: death in how precious life is and you don't have, you really don't have the next day guaranteed. So it does really affect my relationships on a personal level and a professional level that there's this lovely uh, quote by Ram Das that, we're all just walking each other home, and yeah, I really try to live by that. <laughs> mm,
0: that's lovely. Shifting gears <laughs> into the birth space, but let's let's talk about specifically how you work in the birth space. So you do you do birth support, but you also do postnatal support. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I'm a birth doula and postpartum doula. Kind of comes under the umbrella of a birth worker. So, I walk beside women and birthing families, um, definitely queer-friendly <laughs> and a safe space for all birthing people. I walk besides families who choose to birth at home
0: and, and in hospital. So, when you're working, with when you're supporting women in the postpartum period, I want to start there because I feel like that kind of ties in nicely to your work in the, in the deaf space. So when you're supporting women in the postpartum period, what can that look like for them?
1: So often um, a lot of the postpartum planning happens before you give birth. So mothers will engage my services uh, to plan their postpartum period. So often it looks like what do you have from your partner? What time, how much time can they get off? How much family and community support do you have? And for me, there's this extra layer. So no one person can be your village, your partner can't be your village, your doula can't be your village. So my role as a postpartum doula is to sort of weave and link those different threads of support. So you can have the postpartum that you envision. So you might want a traditional 40 days of rest and meals brought to you and healing modalities body work and herbal support. Or you might live a very busy life and have an extended family. It might look like paid support, a cleaner or having a meal train set up. So there's, yeah, definitely lots of different ways it can play out. But as a doula, I centre the birthing person's vision. So whatever. They want to do, and my role is to support them <laughs> in that,
0: yeah. And do you think most people are thinking about that prior to giving birth?
1: I know I definitely wasn't the first time. <laughs> I, think, I think I spent 90% of my pregnancy worrying about the actual birth and then 5% going, oh, crap, <laughs> what am I going to do once this tiny human is out? I have to look after them. Yes. <laughs> oh, and the other 5% obsessing about breastfeeding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I feel like that's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, so knowing that a lot of people aren't necessarily thinking about it, probably, you know, um, people who are becoming parents for the first time specifically. Are there any kind of tools or resources that you can draw from to support people to really think about what they want? And I say people because, you know, it's it's all kinds of couples, but it's also part of the partner's role to be thinking about those things too, isn't it? And I feel like that's something that's maybe lost a little bit, you know, in contemporary society. So what, what are some of the tools that you can be um, giving families to support them to think about this?
1: Birthing partners, fathers, wives, they can... Have a profound transitional period, and they're also prone to postnatal depression as well. So it's not just the the mother or the birthing person who is having huge hormonal hormonal changes mm-hmm. and life changes. So it is important to have the partner involved. So I don't see my role as a birth or postpartum doula replacing the partner. It's supporting them and giving them tools to support. The mother as well. So you can seek out different ways to do that. So mostly I refer on partners to different podcasts or books (laughs) that really, and also just sitting with them together. So when I meet with someone, I'll often say if they're birthing with a midwife, if they're birthing with their husband or their mum, we'll all sit down together. So the the birth team is on the same page
0: or the postpartum support team is on the same page. So let's talk about that postpartum period and how different it can look in that case. For some families, it can be quite a challenging time. And as you mentioned before, you know, there are instances of struggles with feeding and mental health. And a whole bunch of things that come up that you won't necessarily be prepared for, you know, as a support person in in that space, what are some of the things that you are looking for in terms of, you know, noticing when someone might need some extra help?
1: So what I say to the mother, and this is something I draw on from my birthing within education doula training is that drawing spheres of influence and spheres of support. So actually turning, identifying those people before you go into your postpartum. So instead of your partner running to your mother-in-law or your sister or your brother who you may not feel comfortable with, you've identified people for them to go to for help. So it might be your therapist or your counsellor or a trusted midwife and then if they notice differences in you, so you're more, it's not just a three-day baby blues or uh, you're having paranoid thoughts or high anxiety, anxiety they already have a notified safe person to go to.
0: Yeah, excellent. So we've planned for the postpartum period. Yep. <laughs> and now we're going to think about the birth Tell me about what, and again, I feel like your answer is going to be very similar to to your work in the deaf space. But tell me about, uh, I guess, the the process of being with somebody as they as they're bringing their baby into the world. I love birth.
1: Like the youngest mother I've walked beside was fifteen, yeah. as her birth support person, and the oldest mother. I've walked beside have been in their 40s. So the scope of experience can be so different and I really believe that babies come when they want to come. So if you're walking that path, just know that it, it is a special time and even if you don't feel it, you are worthy and you are valued to have the experience that you want. So whether that's to birth in hospital where you feel safe or you feel safe birthing at home, I'm here to help you discover what your options are and what steps you can take to make sure you have the experience you want.
0: How many people would uh, or how many births would you attend that were home births, do you think, or, you know, as a percentage versus? I,
1: I think it's increasing, especially in this area. There is a lot more home birth awareness, but the majority of people in Australia like I'd say, ninety to ninety-five percent of
0: them, <laughs> birth in hospital. So yeah, mm. how do those experiences differ for you as a birth
1: doula? It is a different headspace to support someone in hospital than at home. So I find in hospital, it is harder to advocate for the for the mum, especially if they don't have a known midwife. Mm and you're just walking into the public system and basically playing Russian roulette with the midwives. And I find it difficult when the parents don't have the knowledge to make choices. So if you're not aware of current interventions or current how physiological birth works, then it's very easy to just go along with a cascade of intervention and end up with a birthing experience that you didn't imagine for yourself. Mm. Whereas when I'm supporting someone at home, whether that's undisturbed birth, free birth, sovereign birth, there's a lot of terms getting thrown around at the moment, but uh, whether it's with a midwife or just you and your partner, it's a very different energetic space. You don't have to recreate safety because it's that. it's usually that person's home yep. where they feel safest and usually if it's a homeburn midwife that they've known that midwife throughout their whole pregnancy it's a lot less less advocacy and just holding space so mm. I might be reading a book or <laughs> filling up the birth pool or making tea or looking after their children or basically there to just support the birthing person's vision for their birth
0: yeah <laughs> So I guess the comparative experience for that in hospital is a midwife group practice model that we have locally. What are some of the ways that can recreate safety in that, in that health environment, in that more clinical space?
1: Yeah, so we do have a lot of beautiful midwives that, that do try to recreate that space. So our local hospitals here, Maxwell, uh, birthing centre and coughs um you can take in whatever you want you you can take in people generally <laughs> take in fairy lights and um diffusers and uh, pitchers or a throw rug, you know your own birthing ball. I've seen people bring in their own birth pools <laughs> and then they kind of t- can't tell you, you can't get in it yeah <laughs> so yeah, it's it's really up to you how much you want to recreate your own space, yeah.
0: and how can um, birthing support people and in particular partners support that and advocate for that.
1: Mm. I'd start with watching that movie Birth Time, because <laughs> that that wonderful documentary that can say it way more eloquently than myself and has all the correct statistics. <laughs> And um, actually, comes from, you know, midwives doing the work. So I find partners just really have to delve into that world, read the books, watch the documentaries, be there for your partner. Don't make it their job to educate you as a support person. Do your own work as the support person. <laughs> mm.
0: Where can people watch that?
1: <laughs> just Google. Um, birth time and it'll come up to stream. Yeah, maybe we can pop a link in the bottom.
0: Yeah. So moving along from, you know, creating that space to actually bringing your baby in into the world, you know, and we talked about this in in your in the deaf space, that golden hour after you've had your baby. And, you know, that's different. It's a different experience for everybody again. For some people it's, you know, um, it can be quite a polarizing or shocking experience to have given birth and they may not necessarily want to hold their baby straight away some people will want to and for others it 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 might be that they can't due to to circumstances so tell me about about that space and so for for people who perhaps can't let's start there Mm -hmm. because they've had a c-section or they've been separated from their baby for whatever reason What are some of the ways that they can kind of pull back, I guess, control in that situation and really start to build that connection with their baby? Yep. So often, um,
1: uh, you'll have a birth plan or birth preferences, and going through C-section options, you could nominate your partner to have that skin-on-skin to- contact if you're prevented um, from having that straight away due to sur- going to theatre, theatre, or having surgery. Um, often. Times in the hospital system, there might be complications after um, with hemorrhaging or retained placentas that you may need to leave your baby with someone. So, if you're saying that your partner, you want them to stay with them, the baby can still have that skin to skin with a known caregiver. And also as a birth doula, I've gone, the lovely midwives have let me go on back to the recovery room and I've set up that space so I can get your peri-bottle ready and your birthing afterbirth teas and the fairy lights and the things to continue protecting that space. So even if you do have a traumatic experience at hospital, when you go home you can get in the bath with your baby and have skin-to-skin and... I've known many mothers to have beautiful bonding experiences and long breastfeeding journeys even after having interrupted births or uh, surgical births.
0: Mm. Let's talk about setting up that post-birth space, particularly at home again. And we're kind of flitting in and out of the postpartum and birth space here, but I feel like it's it's, it's relevant. relevant. (laughs) It's relevant. So... As you mentioned, setting up that space, it will really be conducive to to promoting that connection. I guess another side of that is working with people to process birth trauma and that's not just for the the birthing person but also for the partner Mm -hmm. because I think it kind of missed a little bit in in that process of, um, you know, all of this has happened but they've also watched all of this happen. So it's quite a, you know, a big thing and perhaps there's not as many supports for birthing partners as there are for birthing people to process that. So what is your role in that scenario? So um,
1: I do offer to clients a birth debriefing in their first few weeks of postpartum. So that can happen face to face. It can happen online, on Zoom, but going back to me not being a medical professional, if someone is really struggling and they want to really go through something, I would be referring them to a mental health counsellor or therapist. There's also places that you can submit your birth story uh, or hospital experience. So there's there's lots of ways people process that and sometimes we shut down and we can't process it straight away mm. as well.
0: <laughs> mm, and perhaps, you know, sometimes that processing too doesn't happen until the next child <laughs>
1: Definitely. I I would say that birth definitely brings up a lot of experiences and sometimes you can work through something um, emotionally or intellectually, but your body holds that trauma. Mm. So it can definitely play out (laughs) in in subsequent births.
0: Yep. So with all of these things and these balls that you keep in the air, Laura, (laughs) um, what – (laughs) why? What motivates you to do this work? Because – while there can be exceptional joy, there can also be exceptional heartache. And I want to know, you know, why you do this. Yeah,
1: I I feel I'd been called to this line of work for so long. Like, like I'm in my uh, 30s now. I have uh, two children of my own. I have a beautiful supportive partner and um, I'm fortunate enough to have family support. So it really does take no one doula can do all of this. It really does take a village of support. So um, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to have that. But really it was the women that cared for me and the women had served me in my postpartum journeys and my birthing journeys that impacted and changed my life. Like Mm. I really had a fire lit up inside me to serve other women and birthing families after I went through it my, myself. And I had good and bad experiences the first time and the second time birthing at home with just my birth birth support people and having total uh, accountability and total responsibility for my undisturbed birth at home really changed things for me.
0: So to finish up, let's talk about... Your top five tips for birthing women. <laughs> so your, what should every birthing person have in their, their let's start with their um, their birth kit and then let's go postpartum. Yep. So
1: it may not work for everyone, but it definitely is something that I see work for mothers. Number one, get a birth photographer because for me personally, even if it is a pretty good experience, you don't remember half the things that happened because of the hormones and because of the way our bodies are designed to birth. So having a tangible record of what happened and when it happened will will either help you process the trauma of your birth or help you uh, continue to have that oxytocin high when you're reflecting back on certain moments. Secondly, definitely water for me and i know some people birth don't like it but water is such a amazing way to manage pain don't be afraid to vocalize don't don't listen to people if they tell you to be quiet you be as loud as you want during birth <laughs> just listen to yourself if you listen to yourself and you know what you want then you can know your options And I think five would be ask for help Mm. in in whatever way, whether that's a doula
0: or whether that's family support or whether that's your partner, just be prepared to ask for help. Mm. What are some of the, I just want to ask, what are some of the hacks for asking for help? Because that is such a hard thing to do for a lot of people, particularly women I feel who have, you know, the societal expectation that we've got to do everything and be everything and, you know. So what can that look like that is An easier concept for people to embrace.
1: Yeah, just just being honest. So, like, I need help with the kids, or I'm struggling right now. I really need five minutes to myself, or I haven't showered for three days. Can someone watch my kids while I have a shower?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for sharing. It's been really interesting, and I think anyone listening will be really mesmerised by the crossover between your work in the deaf space and the birth space because there is such an enmeshment there and again I guess the privilege is one and the same isn't it so
1: it is different this work definitely is is hard but it is definitely definitely a privilege and I just want to thank you for having me on and Letting me um, talk a little bit about myself and what I do. <laughs> so if people want to find you, how can they connect with you? Um, they can find me on Instagram under the handle of our Services, and the same for my website and Facebook. <laughs>
0: Thank you. No worries. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. In this episode, we chatted about a number of care providers and services and you can find links to these in the show notes. If you would like to connect and share your thoughts, reach out to us on our socials at thevalleyhub_nv, underscore NV or email us at infothevalleyhub.com.au. At Until next week, bye for now.